This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, November 4th. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Doug Blair. Civics education has become a flashpoint in American politics. Many schools are asking how students should learn about themselves and their country in a way that fully encompasses American history, both good and bad. Montana Superintendent of Public Instruction, Elsie Arnzen, recently updated the state standards for social studies to better teach students about civics and the things they need to know to be a good American citizen. She joins the show to talk about those changes, as well as offer insight on how other states can do better with their civics education standards. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Elsie, let's hit our top news stories of the day. Democrat West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin believes that the unbelievable results from the Virginia gubernatorial race and the closer-than-expected results of the New Jersey race justify his cautious stance towards Democrats' unprecedented $1.75 trillion spending package. Additionally, Manchin underscored his belief that the House should pass the $1 trillion infrastructure bill currently being blocked by the progressive wing of the party. Here's Manchin via Politico. The House needs to really, truly pass the infrastructure bill. That's something that's proven. The, the people know what's in it. The states have been uh, advised of how, what they're going to get done. And in my state, I just gave a speech. Six billion dollars comes to the state of West Virginia, fixes my roads and bridges and fixes Internet services, water and sewer, airports, all these things. That's what they really want. And on the other stuff that's coming from the House, they're going to do what, what the House does, and we expect that. And we'll start working it deliberately through the Senate. Manchin's statements highlight the deep divisions in the Democratic caucus as progressives and moderates battle over two massive spending bills. A trillion-dollar spending package has stalled in the House as progressives attempt to force a larger $1.75 trillion spending bill to pass the Senate, while Senators Manchin and Kristen Sinema, Democrat from Arizona, are resisting calls to pass the larger bill over debt concerns. Some Democrats, including Senators Tim Kaine from Virginia and Martin Heinrich from New Mexico, pointed to the failure of the party to pass either bill as one of the causes for the defeat in Virginia. But Manchin argued that a core fear of many Americans was the prospect of higher taxes as a result of the $1.75 trillion spending plan and the fact that negotiations have occurred mostly behind closed doors. Manchin said, We're talking about revamping the whole entire tax code. That's mammoth. We've had no hearings, no open hearings. They're scared to death. For the first time in over a decade, the Supreme Court heard arguments for a major Second Amendment case. The case challenges the constitutionality of New York's strict Second Amendment laws. New York law makes it challenging for gun owners to carry their firearms out of their home. Citizens have to show proper cause before they can be approved to carry a gun for self-defense. The justices' comments and questions during the arguments Wednesday imply that the high court may overturn the gun control measures. Justice Brett Kavanaugh said his concerns over New York's gun laws is that it gives officials blanket discretion to decide whether or not to accept or reject a request to carry a gun. Kavanaugh pointedly added, that's just not how we do constitutional rights. And Chief Justice John Roberts said, you don't have to say when you're looking for a permit to speak on a street corner that your speech is particularly important. The idea that you need a license to exercise the right, I think, is unusual in the context of the Bill of Rights. 
comments by Justice Sonia Sotomayor implied she may support New York's current gun laws. She said the history and tradition of carrying weapons is that states get a lot of deference on this. The justices are expected to announce their decision on the case sometime in June or early July. Florida second grader Fiona Lachelles was joined by Governor Ron DeSantis on a Fox News segment on Wednesday after the little girl was suspended from school for refusing to wear a mask. Lachelles had been disciplined by her school 16 times for refusing to wear a mask and most recently had received a 36-day suspension. Here's part of that segment featuring DeSantis and Lachelles via Fox News. I'm not wearing a mask because you touch it and you have germs on your hand and then you put it on your face and breathe in all the germs. That's right. So, so Governor, I remember in the summer you signed an executive order uh, that mask, ma- mask wearing was optional in the public schools, but then the Palm Beach County schools said, you know what, you got to wear a mask. So, you know, kids like Fiona are caught in the middle. So we've had a lot of litigation uh, since then. Fortunately, we're winning all these cases, uh, Steve, and I'm going to have a a legislative session come in, a special session, primarily to deal uh, with protecting people's jobs against COVID vax uh, requirements. Uh, But we're also going to address this issue of our parents' Bill of Rights and making sure that we have strong teeth in it so that if you have a situation where Fiona's forced to do this, and that's not something her mother wants her to do, then the parent ultimately makes a decision. So we are going to strengthen that, and we're going to make sure that folks are able uh, to go to school in the best possible way for them and for their learning experience. During the interview, Lachelle's mentioned she might have to repeat the second grade due to her suspension, combined with other days the school has taken off. Lachelle's story comes on the heels of nationwide disputes over mask mandates in schools. Governor DeSantis has banned schools from imposing mandates on students, but some districts have refused to comply. Some Florida school districts have begun loosening their restrictions in light of lowering infection rates. Miami-Dade County Public Schools is now allowing middle school and high school students to opt out of mask usage, per NBC6 South Florida. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Montana Superintendent of Public Instruction, Elsie Arnson, as we discuss how her state has handled teaching civics in K-12 education. Conservative women, conservative feminists, it's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories and interviews that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is, women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to policy and politics. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Elsie Arnzen, a former teacher and member of the Montana Legislature who currently serves as the Superintendent of Public Instruction of the State of Montana. Elsie, welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's good to have that Western voice, the the voice of reason, I'll put it that way, (laughs) Um, especially in public education where there seems to be some discourse at this point. uh, And we want in Montana to make sure that local control is controlled by our state and our locally elected officials. Well, absolutely. We are so excited to talk to you a little bit about what you've done in your state and how Montana is leading the way in in certain respects in terms of civics and, and other things. So 
First of all, I wanted to bring you on the show to talk about some of the steps that you've taken in Montana to emphasize uh, civics and social mm-hmm. studies in your schools. So to begin with, what exactly does your job as the superintendent entail? Oh, thank you. You know, I'm one of very few that's elected. So I'm a constitutional officer for the state of Montana, and that means it's a we the people. I work for the Montanans. I work for children. I work for uh, school districts. I work for everyone, taxpayers Of course, 40% of all of the education flows from our taxpayers. And we're getting older in Montana. I think Mm. we're one of the six-aged state of of where we are in America. So wanting to make sure that uh, the investment of public education has value. And I'm responsible for all of that value. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at your current social studies standards on the Office of Public Instruction website, and I grabbed a few examples of... Uh, some of the new standards for 2021. So, for example, second graders need to learn how to demonstrate ways to show good citizenship in the classroom, school, and community, while fifth graders will examine the diverse origins, ideals, and purposes of rules, laws, and key United States constitutional provisions and other foundational documents. Quite a mouthful. But what can you tell us about these new standards compared to the other standards? The other standards. Well, as state superintendent, I have in my care 11 teaching and learning standards, and one of them is social studies. Mm -hmm. So my dad was an American history teacher. And so I learned civics at the kitchen table and going and really living history. I don't know how many trips I made out to monuments Mm. that may not be there right now because of uh, the challenges within our nation mm-hmm. and uh, the, the culture that I believe exhibits right now of saying no. So uh, social studies, it was an honor for me to open this up, an honor for me personally from my father's standpoint. And social studies before was in uh, third grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, and a smattering of high school, whether it was world history or American history. I brought over 100 Montana voices to the table, and we looked at these, and we understood that it shouldn't just be in those classes, Mm -hmm. in those grades. It needs to have a continuity from the time you enter public school to honor America, to honor our Montana uh, Constitution, and more importantly, to honor in that Constitution that we hold so dear in Montana, Indian education for all. We're the only state that really embraces this, not just in words, but in our funding formula, dollars go out, precious dollars go out to our schools to aid in teaching about indigenous history and that interplay between um, where Montana became a state in 1889. So in every single grade right now, our social studies standards are robust Mm. and they are deep original documents in every single one of them. Uh, We had legislation just most recently passed that we are champion stars and stripes in every classroom. So the pledge is being said. Mm. So just understanding and honoring from the time you enter public school in Montana to the time you get that great diploma at the end, that American history, civics, education, geography, and honoring our indigenous warriors Mm. is there in every single grade. They went live July 1 of this previous summer. Mm -hmm. So we're just beginning unwrapping an aid and having our 20,000 teachers and teacher leaders across our state understand what that means because it hasn't been done for almost two and a half decades. 
Right. So one of the things that I kind of find really fascinating is you've mentioned that there was some controversy about some of these topics, right? So how have you responded to some of these topics, like, for example, critical race theory or white privilege or some of those other things in Montana schools? Do those affect the social studies per- curriculum that you've, you've uh, set up? They're not in any of our social studies curriculum. Mm. Uh, Well, not, I shouldn't say curriculum. We only invest in the state standards. The curriculum, because we're a local controlled state, then mirrors what those state standards are. And uh, wanting to make sure then that there are, there is a capacity for teachers to know how to teach. So that's my role, and that's that's enabling those teachers to know how to teach this. So, you know, we knew critical race theory was there. We knew it was coming, and we knew it was in Montana. Mm-hmm. And so rather than backing away and uh, uh, making sure that it was maybe in the darkness, we brought this way into the light. Mm. I asked for an AG opinion. Uh, in April, and he came forward in May, which has the force of law to say you cannot subject a child, an individual in public education, uh, in any framework with critical race theory because that would subject that child to discrimination. Mm. You can't talk about privilege in Montana and isolate it just as that and demean a child, scapegoat a child with anything. So basically what I have done uh, with critical race theory is bring it into the light and say that, yes, it's a theory, but more importantly, it's the actualization of how it's taught that cannot be taught. Discrimination is not allowed in Montana and it is not allowed in public schools in Montana. One of the things that I I did think was important to note while I was reading through this, and you've mentioned this uh, when we were talking about some of these new standards, was that there is a lot of references to learning about the native tribes in the region. Um, I feel like this kind of runs counter to that narrative that a lot of critical race theory people push, that the people who are uh, against critical race theory, for example, are trying to whitewash or ignore our history. So how important was it for you guys to have education surrounding Native Americans in the social studies uh, standards? It's my duty. My duty as an elected official to follow our Montana Constitution. It's embedded in our Constitution that Mm. Indian education for all is part of every single uh, standard in Montana. And that's why it's important to unwrap those other six standards that we have, math and reading, to really make sure that we honor our indigenous cultures, Mm. you know, and come together, right or wrong, good or bad, whatever happened, Let's purport it out there in a manner that students can learn from this. The other thing that we are doing is we are embracing Native language. Mm. And culture is language. So our our elders in our state, um, we want to make sure that we house that language, that um, our children that are, are in our uh, Native schools, our public schools, on our reservations in Montana, that they understand who they were. Mm. And understand that there were challenges, but also understand who they can be. And I think that's the purpose of education right there, is to uncover everything and move a student towards success, not away from success, but push them towards success. That's incumbent upon public education. I'm really glad that you mentioned sort of your goals for these public education, uh, for kids going through the public school system. I'm curious, what do you view as a successful civics education for a Montana child? When they've graduated from high school, what should they know? What should they be able to tell you? What should they have kind of internalized from their schooling? Mm -hmm. That our country is a, a great country. That our country came uh, where we did not want a king, 
that we mm. wanted somebody uh, that we would represented government. And I believe that's where our republic is and our republic is founded. That yes, there are symbols uh, that have come across from monuments, from our flag, uh, and our Pledge of Allegiance, and all of that. And I believe all of those parts um, are to be honored. So if there's one thing that I would like a public school child to know and to go all the way through to them becoming a young adult is to honor our great nation and to understand the turmoil of how we became uh, the United States of America. And not only that, but as a constitutional officer for the state of Montana, mm. to understand why Montana in 1889 joined, joined this great nation and wants to continue part of that great nation's future. So moving on from civics to another topic that you've been very passionate about recently, which is uh, parental rights and parental uh, engagement in education in state schools. So what has your state done to sort of bolster uh, st parents' rights in education, and how have these changes been received by the parents of Montana? Well, thank you. I believe the role of government uh, is one that needs to uh, be by the people. So I have listened. I don't know how many Montanans, over thousands of Montanans that I've listened to on both sides of this. In other words, you need to trust the trustees. Of mm. course you do. And you need to trust our locally elected trustees. Of course you do. But you need to also trust the parents um, I'm a parent. I'm a grandparent. And I firmly believe that you cannot have public education in isolation. Mm. You need to listen to the community. And that community voice is parent. Mm -hmm. That parent voice is powerful. And you cannot have a math lesson be successful without having a parent at that kitchen table helping. And if we didn't learn from the pandemic, when everybody was thrust into that homeschool model or that that um, isolation of where parents had to be that teacher mm -hmm. and aid in that classroom in, in moving education forward, if we didn't learn from that, then where are we now? Right now, we need to have a partnership with parents. We need to have a partnership that's greater than PTA with parents, teachers. We need to have that partnership to make sure that public schools, especially in Montana, are that gold standard mm. and that bright standard. It is not an us versus them scenario. This is a time when we heal. Mm. This is a time when we come together where we've learned and we move forward. Mm. Now, there has been some tension between uh, certain government organizations uh, and certain other organizations and parents involved in education. So the National School Boards Association sent a by now infamous letter uh, that basically called uh, parents domestic terrorists. Um, how do you respond to those those sorts of things? And the, the, the attorney general said something similar. So how do you respond to those uh, claims? You know, uh, from someone in a place of power at this time, it seems that um, it was it, it was overwhelmingly challenging to again come back to an us versus them discussion where we're centered on our children. When I first got into office, and I, very few states elect uh, my position in public education, mm. so I firmly believe that is it is a we the people discussion to put an us versus them scenario to have a divisive comment from an association that is gleaned from taxpayer dollars 
So we give uh, dollars, state, we entrust these associations with, with uh, dollars, but yet they're used as lobbying for political purposes. That, to me, is, is something that shouldn't happen mm-hmm. in the role of public education. Um, I'm elected. Yes, I'm political. Mm. But my role to purport student success means that children do not have an R on their backpack nor a D on their backpack, nor should they be politicized by an association. Government needs to act as government. Associations do not need to act um, as these lobby groups that they have done at this point. Mm. Parents aren't lobbyists. But they are champions. They are champions for their children and for their children's success. Let's bootstrap those parents. Let's, in Montana, that's what we call it. Let's bring them forward and and move them up. If we do that and engage parents in this discussion, our um, social-emotional health Mm -hmm. of our children, because of coming out of this virus and the pandemic and the isolation that's occurred, it's going to be better. It's going to be brighter. I had uh, an at-risk youth behavior survey from the CDC Mm -hmm. that we gave during the pandemic this last spring. 41% of our young adults in high school said that they are clinically depressed. The next step is suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. We don't need that in Montana. No community needs to have that challenge. And our flags not need to be at half-mast because of of a uh, mental health crisis that we have. Right. If we if we have more of a divisive uh, discussion around education, then our children are going to suffer. Right. So let's, as adults, arise above that. Let's communicate together. Let's move forward. My position is on healing in my role, more so than on a divisive action that came from a letter that, in my mind was nonsense. On that note, um, I want to see your response to uh, President Obama made some recent comments on school boards where he referred to, quote, phony trumped up culture wars and instead of stoking anger aimed at school boards and administrators who are just trying to keep our kids safe, we should be making it easier for teachers and schools to give our kids the world-class education they deserve and to do so safely while they are in the classroom. What are your thoughts on on it the was a one sided discussion, mm-hmm. and I would hope that someone in his uh, in his role as uh, a previous president would have looked at the entire three hundred and sixty degrees of individuals working so hard in public education, mm-hmm. and that is the parent. Uh, that's the bus driver. That's everyone that supports. That's the aide. That's everyone that makes sure that those students are safe in learning, that makes sure that they have great opportunities to learn, and that, that there is a uh, promotion moving forward. But an us-versus-them scenario does not need to come out of a previous president. We need to make sure that we, again, my message is on healing. Mm-hmm. My message is on moving forward uh, because we know what the battle is. And the battle is is making sure that our students are going to become bright stars wherever they may live in their community. And it's their success that public education is about. It's not about the adults at this time. Mm-hmm. It's about our children and moving them forward, whoever they want to be. 
right? On the topic of some of those things that we would be teaching our children, uh, some of the things that have sort of come up at a lot of these meetings are uh, sexually graphic books and sex education that have been available to minors in a variety of different settings. So is there a right way for schools to approach sex ed? And then how can parents monitor to make sure that their, their children are not being exposed to things that are inappropriate? So I'm going to come back to government. Great government is transparent government. Mm. And schools, public schools are government. They are an arm of government. I believe it's imperative that parents do know, more importantly, that students understand what is being put in front of them in a curriculum manner. Mm. Now, in the state of Montana, I'm in charge of the, the standards, and the standards are the floor. Curriculum builds up from that floor. Right. So it is important that that local school district show transparency what is being taught. Mm. In college, isn't that a syllabus? That should be the same thing in mm. pre-K all the way up through everything in public education. It is about transparency, making sure when it's taught, how it's taught, and more importantly from my level in licensing to make sure I have the best teacher in front of those students, whether mm. it's in a digital world or whether it's brick and mortar and we're back you know, in person, that we have the best in front of our students, knowing that transparency is the key and the glue to moving forward to that gold standard of public education. So given that we've talked a lot about building these sort of like building up, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we were to sit down or you were to sit down with somebody who is a school board member or maybe a teacher who is critical of some of the changes that you've made, both to the social study standards and how you've empowered uh, parents, how would you explain the decisions you've made to them? Uh, um, I would talk about boardsmanship, especially mm -hmm. to a school board member, you know, to honor the words that are being given to them active listening to making sure that they understand and ask those questions rather than being very silent. I believe school board policies and those policies that are originated um, may not have the force of law, and they need to understand that their actions and their reactions uh, are, uh, are critical at this time. Mm -hmm. So if they are not... Uh, if they are not attuned to the person at the microphone, whether it is a public member or a teacher or anyone that is asking questions of them or wanting more information, if they're not actively participating, then their role as an elected official needs to be elevated higher. Mm -hmm. They need to listen more. They need to communicate more. They need to work harder. If their day at work is hard, one day, they need to come to work the next day and work harder. Mm. That's what I've always talked about in my role in government and, and to go into the storm, not to run away from the storm, to be transparent and say, yes, this is a difficult decision. Let's see if we can come to some sort of a consensus moving the student forward. In other words, it is not about the role of the adult anymore. Mm. If we focus on putting our children first, it's a better community. A community of school, it's a better community of learning, mm -hmm. it's a better community, period, a better state, and it's a better nation moving forward. As we begin to wrap up this interview, um, I'm curious if you have any recommendations for people who are education officials or maybe your equivalent in other states as they begin to navigate these questions of parental involvement in education and reformed civics education. It's about getting involved. You know, um, school board elections come in the spring. Uh, in Montana, they do. Mm. I would say please get involved. If you would like, if you're a teacher and you want to be a teacher leader, uh, I can help you in the, in the pathway of becoming 
who you may want to be. When we remark back onto our students, mm. we would never close a door for them. We would want to offer great opportunities. So for someone in my role that's in government, whether they are an elected or whether they're appointed, mm. we need to make sure that we are doing everything in our power for those children to, for a greater opportunity. And if we put up a wall or put a hurdle up, like what has happened by calling parents um, domestic terrorists yep. and demeaning an opportunity for a student, then we are stopping that student from being successful. Our main goal in public education is for the future. If we put up something right now in our present that's going to encumber someone in the future, our role as adults is wrong. Let's change the path to right. Let's make sure that our children have every opportunity to become whoever they want to be, to better themselves, to better their community, to better their state, and to better our great nation. Well, thank you so much for that. That was Elsie Arnzen, a former teacher and member of the Montana legislature who currently serves as the superintendent of public instruction at the state of Montana. Elsie, thank you so much. Thank you and blessings. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.